0: it is lesson three in this third trimester. I know as you look at the title, you're probably saying to yourself, this has got to be the lesson that you're going to minister the rest of the Lord to me because this could not be exciting for me. Well, it, is, it really is an important lesson. And I'm going to do my best to make it just as pertinent and as relevant as possible. And the title Apostolic Church Government may not make a lot of sense to some need you have at the moment. Uh, But it will begin to make sense when we talk about how we are trying to forge leaders and how God works through the structures of the church. And these things are very important. And uh, I like to call apostolic church government pain-free government. Because if you've been in church life, you know that there can come pains into the life of the body and how decisions are made and how vision comes forth, and how direction is set. And uh, nobody wants to pain the body. Uh, of course, no pastor wants to be pained either. And so there's got to be a better way to do it than a lot of what we do in uh, in our current church era. And I want to read some verses to you and make some comments on them. A lot of this in your notes I'm going to move through very rapidly because it's just, it unless you're just kind of just this, you know, ecclesia ecclesi, What is it? Ecclesiology. Ecclesiologist. I couldn't get the word out there. And unless you like ecclesiastical issues and you just kind of, you know, wired for that, and I am, I kind of like the area, and it's interesting for me to study, but it's kind of like a doctor. You don't want to, you know, you don't need to know the textbook that the doctor studied to get to you. You just want to know can he cut straight when he when he's doing surgery on you? You know, does he know the difference between a liver and you know a pancreas? That's what you want to know. You don't you don't care all the other fancy words. Just can you cut me right, get the thing out, and sew me back up? That's all I need to know. So I'm going to try to make it like that, you know, just, just get what you need so it can be relevant to you. Psalm 127, you can follow along. I probably will take the time to read most of these passages. Psalm 127, verse 1 says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, I'll say that again. Unless the Lord builds the house, who builds it? Now, let me just say this. This, this means your house too not just the house of God it means your house and my house my individual house unless the Lord builds the house they labor in vain who build it so what that tells me right off the bat is that God wants to build my house God wants to prosper my house God wants to enlarge my house God wants to cause my house to stand he wants my house to uh, be able to weather the storms He, he wants good things for my house but the key is it never says unless I build the house It says, unless the Lord builds the house. So the Lord is the architect. The Lord is the contractor. The Lord is the subcontractor. The Lord is the electrician. The Lord is everything. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So so hear me, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm tearing here because I want to get this in your system like Revelation. We don't build the house and ask God to bless it. Unless the Lord builds the house. Unless we get the blueprint of the Lord. You don't, you don't get to make your own blueprint and just say, God, put your stamp on it. You know, sometimes you can do that now. You can get an architectural design via the internet, and you can get some architect to put a stamp on it, and you're, you can go off and build whatever it is. That's not how God works. God says, I'm going to build that. I'm going to build my house. Now, all right, I know I belabored the point, but it was an important point. Isaiah. Isaiah 9, it's like a Christmas passage here that's, that's going to be real important, and people just run by it, but they don't really hear what's being said. Isaiah 9, let's begin with verse 6. It says, referencing Jesus... I know it sounds like Christmas. You only know Christmas is only about, you know, 17 weeks away or something like that. I'm telling you, man, watch the stores. They're going to start switching that stuff on you. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And what does it say here? And the government will be upon his what? The government will be on his shoulders. This is really important again because Jesus upholds certain order. The word government basically means order, that which is ordered and that which exercises authority. I know when you hear the word government, you instantly think of Washington DC or you think of Columbia. Government in the Bible has nothing to do, at least first with civil government. God establishes government. Government is that which he upholds. And the Bible says that there is certain government that God upholds. It says the government will be upon his shoulder. Now, I don't know about you, but when God upholds my house, you know, I want him upholding it, don't you? Do you understand there are houses that are being built out there, and I'm not talking about materially and naturally, I mean spiritually, that God does not uphold because they're not built according to his plan. And, and the first storm that comes by, because that's the parable, there was a man, a wise man, who built his house upon the rock, and the rock was Jesus, and when the storms came and the winds came and the, all the thing, that it, it stood. But the one that was built on the sand Right? You know the parable. So what does that mean? It means you've got to be careful where that house is built. And it must be built by God because it will rest on his shoulder. Sure. And it says, and of the increase of his government, verse 7, and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even Forever I'm going to just stop reading there Let's get over in the New Testament real quick And we'll go through our notes I will get there 1 Corinthians chapter 12 Verse 28 Just want to sow some concept Into you before we get Into the notes 1 Corinthians 12 28 It says And God has Appointed these in the church First Apostles second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues. It says God has appointed these in the church. Now, it it didn't say, did it say And a denomination appointed these in the church, did it? Are you sure? Who did it say who appoints? God appoints. Did it say a church board appointed? Who appoints? God appoints. All right, I'm just making some points here. Just making some points. God appoints these. So God has something to do with appointing things in the church. And then lastly, in Ephesians 2.19, and then we'll get rolling. Ephesians 2.19, it says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So he's talking about when you were born again and you came into the kingdom of God and he says, here you became a member of the household of God, verse 20. It says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord in whom you are also being built together for a, what does that say? Dwelling, Dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, this is, this is one of my favorite passages because it says this. It says that, that together, as the church, we are being built on a foundation, not just any foundation, it says. He says Jesus is the cornerstone, so he's the head, most important building blocks, Jesus. But he says, in this foundation, there's going to be apostles, there's going to be prophets, and then it's going. the building's going to become fitted together. It's going to grow into this temple in the Lord. And God says this. He says, I will come into that, and I will dwell in that. Now, that's really an important word, because truth of the matter is, most churches, and, and we'll put ours in there as well, we experience little visitations. God doesn't want to visit His people. I know we call that visitation. I know it's even preached that way. And, and years ago, I got convicted on it because God doesn't want to visit us. He wants to habitate. He wants to dwell. He wants to set up shop. He wants to say, "This I want, I want to reside here amongst these people." Now I know theologically. God is here, he's there, he's everywhere. That's, that, to be God, that's a part of being God. You can be anywhere and everywhere at once. But God manifests himself in tangible, experiential ways in places. He did that at Jerusalem. He's done that through revivals through the years. And God wants to dwell in places. But here's the deal. God doesn't dwell in places that we just set up and just beg him to come to. God says, I dwell in what I build. You can't build what God needs to dwell in, but God God will give us patterns, and he does in the scripture, he gives us patterns and plans and details and things, and he says, if you will build according to design, I will dwell and I will live in that thing. And the reason God doesn't oftentimes dwell in churches in America is because we just just throw something out there and think he's got to show up in it. Now, I'm not talking that, that it's got to be some edifice or some it has to be expensive. I I mean, God will come to a Walmart, a renovated Walmart, as quick as he'll come to a a magnificent, brand-new church building. God doesn't care what the natural materials are, but what God cares about now is have you built internally and spiritually according to the design that he asks and requires in order that he would come. It works in your house as well. You, you've got to begin to run your house and operate your house according to certain precepts, even personally, for God to dwell in it. But I'll just tell you, if you let anarchy rule in your house, God isn't going to dwell there. <laughs> what God's going to say is, you may be confused, but I don't have to dwell in it. All right. It happens in the church as well. So let's get through the notes here. I'm going to have to move through this quickly. When it comes to government, uh, it's, it's, it's an important uh place for us to understand because basically it's a word for structure and order. How are things guided, directed, decided? Who has the ability to make decisions, establish boundaries? As I mentioned, if everybody just did what they wanted, you would have anarchy. So there are several important concepts here that I just want to remind you. Most of these we've already gone over in previous lessons. Number one is that God is for order and authority. God God is not somehow irritated with order. There is divine order. It's all through the Bible. He set things up. He told them how to run things. He told them how to do things. There was a divine order. And, and we've already talked for almost 10 weeks on authority. There's authority that God has established even amongst his people and amongst his church. So government is basically the uh, codification or it is the it is the presentation of that order and authority. It's needed because without it, There will be lawlessness and anarchy. There's confusion, and the Scripture tells us in the book of Judges, because the Israelites would not respond to how God moved through the judges, the Scripture says that every man did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, I'll just tell you what happened. The Israelites, see, it was never God's intention to really let there be kings. That really wasn't God's intention. I don't know if you've ever thought about why he would not want a king, but I can tell you this. It's because his intention was to always be king. But they bugged him and bugged him and bugged him, and they wanted a king and they wanted a king. We want to do it this way. We want to do it this way. Everybody else gets to do it this way. Why can't we do it this way? I mean, the Assyrians have a king. It seems like we ought to have a king. Why should the Assyrians? Why should the Persians? Why should the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites? Why do they get kings? We never get kings. You never treat us the same as you treat everybody. And they just, they just did that to God. And finally, let me. there's a lesson here, too. Sometimes God is so tired of hearing you yak, he says, here. And then we run around and go, isn't God good? I'm sure they did. God gave us a king. God gave us a king. And it was the worst thing that ever happened to them because there weren't many good ones. There are a few good ones, but not many. It was because they would not listen to the Lord through the divine setup that was coming through priests, prophets, judges. His divine setup was starting to emerge, but they didn't want that. They wanted what everyone else did. Now, here's what we do in America. We think that because America is a democracy, that democracy ought to reign everywhere. Can I just say this to you? I don't want Washington, D.C. in the church. I don't want that. That's the biggest mess I've ever seen. It is sick and dysfunctional. And so we've got to understand in the church... That that when we get saved, we aren't we aren't saying, well, why, why do they get to do it that way? And why can't we have it this way? Listen, stop, time out. Let's let's say let's let's find what God's upholding and do our best to fall under that. Now, a couple quick things here. There are different realms of government. This is very important. There are jurisdictions which are directed to be governed a certain way. Now, again, I don't have time to go through this. It's really fascinating if you wanted to study it. But God speaks in his word how civil government is to be set up. And, and so there's a way that civil government is set up. There is a way home government is set up. There's a way church government is set up. All right? And that doesn't mean they all, because I'll just tell you right now, our, our house really doesn't run, I'm talking our individual house, I don't know that we're a democracy. I, I, no, we're not, are we? No, we're, we, I mean, we don't take votes in my household either, lots. Of, especially when the kids were little. There was no voting. I, and some of you can understand. There were no voting in your house. There were certain things that you were a dictator with. You were tyrannical. Most of the time, hopefully, you were a benevolent dictator. But nonetheless, there was a government, and a lot of times the government was, Dad said so, and that settles it. Nobody thinks you're crazy. In fact, you just might be a great dad. <laughs> anyway, we'll leave that one alone too. But God, God, you see, God rules over everything, but jurisdiction has its limits. All right? And, and, and the reason this is important is because just because you rule in one area doesn't mean you get to rule in another area. Just because, just because um, um, you know, you're the head of your house doesn't necessarily mean you get to be the head of my house. In fact, it doesn't mean that. Because, you're, because my house isn't your jurisdiction. Are you following me? Certain jurisdictions. See, the classroom, let's take a teacher. I know we have teachers here. Teachers are in authority over their classrooms. They are in authority. You know, the, the, the 20 kids that are in the classroom, they do, not, they do not have authority there, nor do the parents have jurisdiction in that classroom. Now, that's not to say they can't express maybe concerns or desires or things like that. But do you understand, everything has a jurisdiction. The church has a jurisdiction. In other words, just because we, we, we all love God and we can all hear from God and all this, that doesn't mean everybody's in charge. Are you following me? Because it may not be your jurisdiction. In fact, I will suggest to you that the reason you have a pastor is because it's his jurisdiction. Are you following me? Now, we'll get, we'll get into this some more. Everything has a divine pattern. Government is not implemented by personal opinion, personal comfort, or personal fears. But we got to understand the scripture. If we don't follow divine pattern, you will never get divine results. Now, I'm going to go through this real fast. Most denominations or churches have built in assumptions, or maybe presumptions, about how government is established and operates. Now, I'm just going to share this with you. Nobody ever thinks that the way their church runs is unscriptural. I mean, I could go to churches, I could go to Every church in Charleston County and ask them this question, and most of them would think they were doing it right, and and nobody thinks they're doing it wrong, and nobody thinks that it's unscriptural. In fact, nobody can I just share this with you? Which is really a good thing nobody even thinks about it unless there's a problem. You see, if everything's going right, it's wonderful, it's just the way it works. If everything's settled, even in your house, nobody thinks about how how order comes to that house. But the minute there's a problem or the minute something goes wrong, then everybody wants to know how does it get solved or how does this get addressed? So knowing that, um, most government has evolved through tradition, power struggles, and people's fear. Let me give you an example. I'll just give you an example. Uh, A church I know of, it was a large church, went through pastoral transition. Uh, It had great pastoral authority that existed within that church, and the pastor lost his mind and uh, did something uh, immorally that disqualified him from being pastor. Well, they were able to deal with it and remedy it, and then they secured a new pastor that came to the church, tried to bring healing and help and all the things that would have to happen after a situation like that. But everybody started to say that if if we would have had a different government, we wouldn't have had that problem with that original guy. If we would have just changed the way we decide things around here, we, 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 wouldn't, we wouldn't have any problem uh, with this whole thing. And so what happened was they changed the whole method of operation in the church out of fear that they would get somebody else like him, and they associated the way decisions were made with, with what happened to them with regards to the fall Of this particular pastor I want to share this with you it doesn't matter if you go to a Catholic Church you'll find priests who abuse you can go to a Baptist Church and all the congregation gets to vote and they'll still run off with the secretary you can go to a a Methodist Church or a Nazarene Church where you have a district superintendent and a bishop and they'll still get hooked on internet pornography Okay, are you hearing what I'm saying? The form of your government doesn't address the carnal heart. Whether there's a strong pastoral government or whether there's a, a government that everything exists through committees and boards and, and it goes through this, it doesn't matter. If you've got a carnal heart, you can manipulate anything and get your way. So, so you can't let fear begin to determine how church operates. God says this is how it operates, We have a democracy in America, and do I have to prove the point that we have got people sitting in a democracy that are scoundrels? And they've got all sorts of points of accountability. And they're still ripping us off. And everybody's worried about that poor pastor down the road who, well, you know, he doesn't even have a board. (laughs) Well, we need one giant board over Washington, D.C., So we can't allow the world to twist and convolute our thinking and pull us out of where God wants us to be because a carnal heart will jump over the boundaries and lines and get themselves in trouble every time. Now, there's several forms here. This is going to go really fast because you probably don't care and, and it doesn't mean a lot. I need to get to the part that's really important. Number one is there are different forms and with every form, there's a different way of doing it. There, there, are, there are ways even under each one, and, and so, so one size can have some tweaks and some differences, but basically there are three basic forms of the way churches operate. The first one is called an episcopacy. It comes from the Greek word episkopio, which means to watch over. Now, because it's episcopacy, it doesn't necessarily mean that it means just straight-up episcopal. Now, it is true the episcopal church runs under an episcopacy, I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Episcopacy. Yeah, I believe I am. But basically what that is is that there's a bishop somewhere who appoints and oversees what goes on in local churches. Now, again, there are various uh, derivations of this. Uh, sometimes the bishop has full control in making those changes. Sometimes the bishop will ask Uh, leaders internally inside the church and get their input. Sometimes he lets them even vote, and then he decides out of that vote. I mean, there's all different ways they do it, but basically the key is how the pastor is dealt with, and the pastor is under the bishop technically. And uh, its strength is that it recognizes authority. However, the bishop in most cases has no relationship or understanding of that local church, and uh, in some cases he can appoint a person who has ulterior motives and Is only filling up a job opening I I was in a church that had district superintendents and I used to say district superintendents were a lot like used car salesmen they didn't care who bought what church bought what pastor and what pastor went to what church they were there to fill an assignment period and most of the time they had no clue as to what was going on now I understand that's a that's a rotten scenario I understand there can be some better scenarios but the truth is Is it a biblical scenario well we'll get to that in a moment the second form is what we call a Presbyterian form Presbyterian form is basically one that has committee or boards that oversee it now the board can change its name it can be deacons it can be elders it can be trustees it can be stewards it can be directors but what usually happens is is that within that board power begins to solidify, and oftentimes it becomes an oligarchy, which you know what an oligarchy is. It's ruled by a few. And what happens is in those situations, usually the pastor is under that board. Now, there's several problems with that. Uh, Number one is usually the pastor is treated in those situations like he's a hireling. In other words, he works for us. So since he works for us, now, I mean, everybody's spiritual, I get this. I mean, everybody thinks they're serving God, I understand. But the minute that pastor challenges the power that resides within that oligarchy, I will assure you, they will begin to sense that it's time for the pastor to move on. In fact, and to do anything, you've got to get approval from the board. And it can be sometimes as... You know, it, it can be financial matters. It, it can be, you can't, you can't go out and buy someone a lunch without getting approval. You can't, you can't go and, 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 and fix, you know, fix a chip off the wall unless you get a vote on it and it's put into the minutes. I mean, I mean it could be absolutely anything. And, of course, the hiring and firing is probably the most unscriptural part of the whole thing. Its strength is is that it forces some form of consensus usually. At least we try to find some form of consensus. But can I just share with you, most of the time it's highly political and can easily turn into a rule by just a few. Sometimes those few rest in a long-time family that has been within a church, that has has entrenched themselves within that church, and, and it becomes their church. I call it the plantation. The family owns the whole thing, and then there's this second level, and then, of course, then there's the... uh, Well, we'll just leave it at that. But the pastor gets controlled by the use of money or force. There's an old saying, and it's not in the Bible, but I believe it's true. It says, he who holds the gold makes the rules. Whoever holds the purse strings will eventually control the decision-making. You say, well, well... If, if it's in the Bible, Presbyterios is in the Bible, and Episcopio's in the Bible. Well, th- you're right, but they mean different things than what they've come to mean in our current culture. And then thirdly, it's the congregational form where democracy or majority rules. The congregation gets to choose, usually by vote, what it will or will not have and what it will or will not do. This was birthed out of, originally, the priesthood of all believers. People began to say, well, it was like what Korah did with Moses, that we reviewed. Korah said, "Hey Moses, you get up, you put your toga on the same way I do." I mean, I, I mean, I, you aren't you aren't any better than I am. And and when you get to the New Testament and we know that we're functioning under the priesthood of the believer, we all say, "Hey, I'm a spiritual as pastor." In fact, some people think they're way more spiritual than I am and they hear from God way better than I do. And and so what they do is they say, why do you get to call all those shots? Why is it that it's you? And then they do the same thing that Korah did to Moses. And so what happens is, is because there's this priesthood of believers, then maybe everybody should have a say. Well, how do you do that? Well, you take a vote. Well, how do you know when you got the will of God? Is it 60%? Think about that for just a minute. You take a vote, 60% of the people say, yeah, that's God. Then you got 40% of the people. Now, what, what, like, they were deceived? I'm, I'm just asking. Or maybe it's 50% plus one. 50% plus one must be God. 50 plus one. Does that mean 50 minus one? Like, like they're out of the will of God? I mean, I mean, really? Really? What if the majority, let's just say, what if the majority's carnal? How many of you know America votes for things that I don't think is the will of God? Do you think churches don't do that? How do you as a leader make a, a tough decision in the midst of a congregation that you may be scripturally correct, but if they don't like it, well, they could vote me out next time. Oh, so do I please, or do I please? Lord, I got an electric bill due next month. I'm, are, you, are you following me? See, it presupposes that pastors come and go, and congregations are here to stay, and and, and we're going to break that mentality, and Legacy is one of a growing, really, thousands of churches. What I'm sharing with you is is not something unusual. I could go down a list of, of numbers of churches in our area, churches all across our nation, that have finally reached the place. In fact, I was looking through a website today, numerous Baptist churches. They're they're transitioning and changing because that is dysfunctional, what I just shared with you. There's got to be a better way. There's got to be a scriptural way. And what that way has been called now is apostolic church government. Now, I'm going to give you just several bullet points because, because you've now been through, I've taught you on loyalty. I've taught about authority. We've taught you about the things we felt like were necessary to begin to sow into you concepts of how God works in the earth and works through delegated authority. Now let's get, let's get it down to where the rubber hits the road, the nuts and bolts part of all of this. It's because we're going to be transparent in the whole deal. The first thing is an apostolic church government. Number one is the pastor leads the church. The pastor is not an employee of the church. Now, I understand that when I go down and if I go buy something that I have to fill out some credit app or something, it's going to say, who's your employer? And I'll write in the line, legacy church. Because when I receive a check, it has legacy church on it. And so I understand what they're asking for and what they want to know. But spiritually, I am not employed by the church. Are you fine? I'm not an employee. I am what God calls is I'm, I'm a set one. God sets in the body his leadership. I'm here not because I was hired. I'm here because of God's call. You see, you can't fire a call. It just it doesn't work that way. Now, what happens is, is that people then connect to pastor's vision as he gives leadership rather than the traditional role of a pastor who simply enables or facilitates 300 people's desires. Are you following me? It's a whole different mentality, all right? Leadership. So pastor leads the church, and people come and connect because of the call or the anointing. And again, we dealt with that in the first two trimesters. So number two, the pastor is called for life. Now, you've heard me say this before. I I have learned through the years to never say never. Because the minute you say never, there's something in the throne room of God that makes his ears perk. And he says, I heard a never somewhere. Is it true Kevin said never? That he would never do this? And it's as if God goes, well, we'll see about that. So I've learned you never say never To God but there is no thought and I'll just tell you right now Tracy and I have settled this and you've all heard those stories we've told them but we ain't going nowhere if, if something happens and there's a bump along the way and you were to say well I think we need a new pastor then here's what happens you go find one that's what happens now, we don't want that to happen. Don't misunderstand. And I hope you laugh and take that because I'm trying to be funny as saying this. But, but that's it. it. That's how it works. Okay? That's how it works. All right? There's no thought. We're here for life. Apostolic church structure is similar to a family. Dad and mom don't come and go. They're committed to their sons and daughters of the faith. I can't imagine doing life without you. And uh, that's how it should be. And uh, that's not to say that people won't feel led of the Lord uh, to go. I understand there are seasons in people's lives. I understand how all that works. You know, we're not making blood oaths and saying it has to be this way. I understand people, church members, may be here for a season, and for whatever reason, they feel like it's time to, to go on. But I can tell you this, I, this I'm not that one. That's not me. This is, this is my life's work. Well, I should say you are my life's work as well as others okay <laughs> i could say something really funny like for some of you it will take a lifetime <laughs> but that wouldn't be that wouldn't be fair wouldn't that wouldn't be right all right but you see that's what that's love that's what love is love is love is seeing someone that's imperfect but being able to create value in them and know that god died god died for them and loved them and you just keep walking with them all right doesn't mean you won't be aggravated. We'll just hey, let's just put it out there on the table. Are there gonna be days you're gonna be aggravated with me? Yeah, just like you're aggravated with your family. I'm aggravated with her some days, and I'll guarantee you she's aggravated with me a lot of days. But we still walk together and we'll do it till our last dying breath. Okay, that's just how it works. That's where that's when you grow. You grow when it's hard. You don't grow when it's easy. You grow when it's tough. Amen. So, all my tough days, I say, man, I really growed through those days. Amen. Letter C. The pastor, the assumption is the pastor can be trusted. That's the assumption. Now, there is an appropriate place for accountability and authority for the pastor. However, the underlying assumption is that you can trust him. It's remarkable that people trust 8 to 12 lay people on a committee. Or a bishop, a person who lives hundreds of miles at times away from them. More than they would somebody who's amongst them on, a, on almost a daily and certainly a weekly basis. I've said this for years. I think a person can fake about six months, generally. I mean, there may be some better fakers. But six months, you start wearing yourself out if you're faking. you are just get worn out. And so your real character begins to come through, I believe, within six months to a year. Listen, I've been in this city now for coming up on 14 years. I mean, some of you have been with me since day one. I, I, I will be the first one to confess, and we won't take any testimonies on this one either. That I understand. I, I, am I a perfect human being? No. I've been mad. I've been aggravated. I've probably been impetuous at times. i probably said things I wish I hadn't said. I mean, it's not like, you know, I'm you know, just like a cussing, swearing madman or something. But I mean, there are times you just get irritated under the anointing, you know, that's kind of... it's just. and Should I have done that? No, I shouldn't have done that. I mean, you know, so I understand that. We're not talking perfection. Ain't nobody perfect in the room, amen? Yeah, yeah okay. But here's the deal. In 14 years, you've seen in public what I am in private. If you come and stayed with me a week at my house, I'll guarantee you, you, you ain't going to find much different than you've seen for the last 14 years. And, and, and that's how it's supposed to work. But, but there's this, this thing, and that's and and why I'm a part of the remnant movement with Pastor Larry Stockstill, is because I understand that when high-profile ministers crash and burn, or when any minister crashes and burns, and whether they embezzle money or whether they run off with another woman or whether there's a scandal, I understand that, that their mess, it's not fair, it's not right, but it happens. It sloshes a little bit towards me. Because we say to ourselves, if one could do it, why couldn't he do it? But, but keep this in mind. For, for the few nationally known people that we have seen crash and burn in their character and with their integrity can I tell you this there are over 380,000 pastors in America and I'll tell you this 80 to 90 percent of them are serving God and loving God and they're walking straight every day of their life so don't don't let a name or two taint you or defile you to think to think everybody's like that because can I just tell you this I've had some pretty rascally church members and you wouldn't want me to saddle you with their character would you I mean, you wouldn't want that if I had somebody that just was a thorn in my flesh and and suddenly you walk up and you wouldn't want me to handle you because of them because you would look at me and say, but pastor, I'm not Mr. Rascal. I'm Mr. Peaceful. So don't treat me like Mr. Rascal. And you'd be right. You aren't them. I'm not them. I'm not them. Now, people have asked they said well what happens if you turn into them well let me let, there's a couple there's a couple points here number 1 is <laughs> i won't be alive cuz my wife will shoot me <laughs> so my my accountability is a 357 magnum is what my that's number 1 number 2 is though in all seriousness though constitutionally now listen this is legally i have an oversight And you've met most of these men. You've met Pastor Rod on a consistent basis. Who if something goes wrong, he comes in and constitutionally he takes over and he deals with me. He deals with me. That way the sheep don't have to raise their hand against the shepherd and fall under a judgment from God because they raise their hand against a shepherd. And I know this happens all the time. There are churches and people that run pastors out and then they're under a curse. Because sheep were never designed to raise their hand against a shepherd. Now, you say, well, what happens if they're scoundrels? I get it. Believe me, I get it. Because someone does need to hit them with a two-by-four, and that's why pastors, and that's why we're going to places all over the nation and going into churches, my wife and myself, and we're making these connections because pastors need someone who will fight for them and correct them when that moment comes. All right? So that God can continue the blessing, and people don't fall under judgment. But the assumption is we can be trusted. Listen, I, you know, and, and I don't mean to be mean, but I'm going to say it out loud. I've Through the years, through the years, through the years, I've had people look at me and say, I don't know if I can trust you. And I, and, and I want to go, number one is, if I, just, if I got down with it and said, what is there? I'm not sure there's anything more there than a feeling. But listen, you need to go somewhere where you can trust leadership. Come on, folks, don't let me speak eternal things into your spirit that will either get you to heaven or keep you out of hell and then look at me and say, I don't know if I can trust you. Well, then how do you not know that I have not hoodooed you spiritually? I mean, there's somewhere you got to trust. And we've all got trust issues, amen? Is anyone here not been burned by someone? I mean, I've been burned. I've been wounded. I've been hurt. It was unfair. It was unjust. It wasn't right. But guess what? i got to keep trusting. All right, I've got to do it. All right, letter D, got to hurry. The pastor, apostolic church, the pastor chooses or he appoints his leadership. Now, again, I could, I could take you uh, back to uh, the book of Numbers. I believe it's Numbers uh, chapter 11. A lot of these concepts flow from here when we see um, it says, yeah, Numbers 11, 16. I'm doing this off the top of my head here, so... It says, the Lord said to Moses, gather to me 70 men of the elders of Israel whom you know to be the elders of the people. So, so what God said to Moses was, he said, you need to pick out those who are gonna come up with you and be your leadership. Now, what happens with this, and the reason this is such a good biblical principle is it cuts down dramatically on power struggle. You see, leadership here in this church, leadership is an extension of the pastor's ministry. They hold my hands up. They come alongside, they serve, they help. They're an extension. What I can't do, they begin to do. Some of you are training right now uh, for the very real possibility somewhere in the future to be in a form of leadership. And when you walk into that leadership, yes, it's your anointing, yes, it's your ministry area, yes, you're responsible, but it becomes an extension of what God is doing in that house through the vision, it's articulated through the pastor. See, it becomes an extension. And so leaders become, become hand holders. Again, through the years, I've sat through church board meetings, and I've listened to guys on the church board say to themselves, we, we're the voice of the people. We're the ones that's the voice of the people. I want to say, you ain't at church enough to be the voice of the people. But I'm a nice guy, and I didn't say that. But they aren't the voice of the people. They're the extension of the pastor. They're the extension of the shepherd. And so leadership is in unity with the pastor because he's the articulator of the vision, and they choose to fit in that vision. And you say, well, what happens if if that doesn't work anymore? Then they don't, they aren't leaders anymore because that's their job. That's their function is to be that extension. Then then letter E, the pastor is accountable, and I mentioned this, and overseen by an apostle and apostolic counsel. So, if sheep raise their hand against the shepherd or, or want to discipline, then they can find themselves under divine judgment. Therefore, a shepherd's pastor, and that's why I said every, everybody needs a pastor. A pastor needs a pastor. And they will be the ones that will determine what order and correction will come into his life. So, again, Pastor Rod, uh, at this point, uh, Pastor Carl Morris, Pastor Van de Cody, they are legally uh, defined right now as being those that can come in. If there was an accusation that was thrown at me, they would determine whether there was any merit to the accusation. They would go through the steps, the biblical steps of understanding that accusation, and they would determine, is this something that disqualifies Kevin from the ministry? And so maybe we pull him out and, and we take care of him in some certain way, but but he, he's disqualified himself, so he has to leave. It may be something as simple as, you know, he, he sits down and and... Uh, maybe there'll be a time that restoration can come i mean that's in that's in their ballpark i don't i don't have any hand in that that's in their ballpark and so uh, they will determine those things now here's the deal like i said you never need that unless there's a problem the good news is if there's no problem then it's pain free see it's all pain free and, and and i often say this to people every every time you walk in the church doors you're voting Every time you come to church, you know you voted. Every Sunday, we take a vote when you come. You voted yes. I'm here, yes. Every time you determine to write a check off and sew gifts and, and, and you know put the tithe in, every time you do that, you're voting. Vote yes. I, I mean, as I recall, did anybody get like one of those robocalls from me on Sunday morning that said you gotta get up and you gotta be here? Anybody get one of those from me? No, it was your choice. To get up and to come, I, I don't recall me getting in in your purses or your wallets, did I? Enforced you? Say so write that check now, Bill. Write it. Come on, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Andrea, Andrea, I'm sorry. Yeah, Andrea. <laughs> See every time. Are, are you following me? That you you say yes. You say yes. Now, I'm and I'm almost done. This this is one of the best books. It was written oh probably maybe 10 years ago now. I don't know. I'd have to look at the publishing date. But Churchquake is what it's called. And basically, it was C. Peter Wagner's uh, uh, attempt at beginning to write in a way that denominational churches could begin to understand what was happening in uh, in the independent or interdependent uh, non-denominational churches and, and how how, they would, how would they structure their leadership and how they would begin to do these things. And so for people that may be interested in this area now, again, you have to kind of be like a nerd like I am in this area and, and maybe enjoy something like that. But if it's something that you would be interested in, it, this would be a much easier readable way to understand maybe the finer points and to pick up that book. But I do this. I, I share this lesson. It's not like any other lesson will do. But this one lesson I do because I think it's important just to underscore again what, what God's pattern is in order that church life can run with some sense of smoothness and, and unity. And, you know, where there's unity, there's blessing. Amen? Amen. And I might just say, because when I do it, there may be a question or two, but I'm probably not going to take that in a public forum. But if you have questions, I'd be more than happy to answer it. So you can come talk to me, email me, and we'd be more than happy to be transparent with you and let you know Uh, how it is that all this works practically in the life of legacy. Amen.